Well, good evening, 722. If you've got your Bibles, please grab them. We're going to be in Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9. We're walking through the book of Acts for a long time. Um, and we are in the final week of this series called Wrecked. And, and that really is my, my hope and my prayer for you, that the gospel would just wreck you in the best possible way, that your life, regardless of the direction it's on, would be totally and completely interrupted by the gospel, and that God would just, just deconstruct you and then put you back together just the way he wants to. And so that's, that's what we've been talking about. Um, one little announcement before I dig in here. Uh, if you uh, showed up to, to the Brazil meeting, right, to go on a mission trip to Brazil, and you're thinking, oh, no, I might not be able to go to Brazil because 100 people came, uh, uh, we are working very hard on our end of it to make sure that every person that, that feels called to go to Brazil will have an opportunity to go to Brazil. It, it might It might... We're going to do multiple trips, maybe over multiple weeks to maybe a few different locations. But just as the church of 1122, um, when God moves in you to respond, then we don't want to be the ones that keep you from responding. Make sense? So um, uh, just know we're working on that to make sure everybody gets an opportunity uh, to go to Brazil or whatever mission trip that you feel called to go on. All right. It's kind of the, the story of our church right now, right? We build a place and we fill it up in 18 weeks. So... Welcome to 1122, all right? All right, here we go. We're going to dig in. Uh, Acts chapter 9. We're going to do two miracles um, in one point, and we're going to cruise by the first miracle pretty quick. Verse 32 is where we're going to start. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Luda. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but the saints are not uh, just an NFL team, nor are they uh, just a bunch of old dead guys that some group of people voted on them to be super Christians, all right? Did you realize, this is going to be a newsflash, that, that if you were a follower of Jesus, that you are a saint? I thought I'd get an amen or somebody feel better, right? Somebody, like, I told you, baby, I told you I was a saint, all right. So, the good news is, is that you are a saint. If you're a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, then you're actually a saint. That's what the Bible refers to you as. I know your spouse doesn't, but the Bible calls you a saint. You were a sinner, all right? You were a sinner, but your identity, the core of who you are, if you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, is no longer a sinner. Now, you were a wretched, black-hearted sinner, all right? Don't get me wrong. I don't want you to feel too good about yourself, but... Your current state is sainthood because the old is dead and you have been resurrected with Christ and you are a new creation. And so when God looks at you, if you're a Christian, the reason he's not disappointed is because he sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. He doesn't see your mistakes and your failings. He sees the perfect life lived out by Christ. It's a part of what the Bible means. I quote it almost every week. For God made him who was without sin to be sin for us so that we could become his righteousness. That when, if you're a Christian, whether you just became one tonight or, or you've been one, you know, you were in Sunday school with Moses and you've been walking with Jesus for a long, long time, uh, that you, regardless of your past or even your current struggles, you and I, if you're a follower of Jesus, is a saint. That should make you feel better about yourself. Now, as Peter went here and there, among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in, at, I know it's L-Y, but it's pronounced Luda, there he found a man named Ananias, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, now notice this, Peter just initiates this. That, that, uh, uh, Ananias doesn't even ask for this, but he just initiates it. And he says, Ananias, Jesus Christ heals you. This is important. That Peter takes zero credit for the healing. He just says, Jesus Christ heals you. Um, uh, 
he, he doesn't, Peter's not even saying, you know what, it's kind of a big deal that he's working through me, isn't it? I don't know if you've heard about me, but I am a big deal. My nickname is The Rock. The whole church is going to be built upon me, right? None of that. None of that. There's no ego involved, but it's, it's Jesus that heals him. And so here's what he says. So he says, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And all the mamas said, amen. See, it's in the Bible, right? There you go. If you want to quote a ver- memorize a verse, you ought to memorize that one. Literally, in the Greek, what this means is rise and take care of your mat. That's what it means. So it was customary for paralyzed folks to lay on these mats, to just kind of hang out on these, on these mats. So, you know, help prevent bed sores and those kind of things. And if they were, and oftentimes if, if you were paralytic, then they would kind of place you in different places around town. You'd beg for money, that kind of stuff. And so they would place you on these mats. And one of the things that I've always found um, just kind of interesting, weird, seems like you don't really need to do this, is in the Gospels, Jesus heals this paralyzed guy, and he says, rise and take up your mat. And I would think, why in the world would you want to take that nasty thing with you? Okay, because think about it. You're not, especially if you're paralyzed, everything you do all day is happening on the mat. You, you track it with me? Everybody there? Do I need to illustrate this any further? It's a nasty mat, right? And you would think that um, after you were healed and after you were whole and after you've been healed in the name of Jesus, and, and Peter says Jesus heals him, all right? Um, so after you're healed by Jesus, it seems like you would just want to leave all of that behind you. And so Jesus commands the guy in the Gospels to take up your mat. And now Peter, following exactly what his rabbi taught him to do, he says, make your bed, take care of your mat. You take your mat with you. Why? Why? Remember last week we said that, that we, should, we should neither deny nor be defined by our past? This is a part of it. Do you realize that, that when Christ heals you and, and you are a new creation in Him, that your past doesn't disappear, but it, just does not, it no longer determines your future? And the dirtier the mat, the more glory that goes to God. And that's why you should not be ashamed of the things that you used to do because you're not the person that you used to be. And so for those of you that were, that were saved out of just, I, I mean, just some really, really bad circumstances, okay, then you do not hang your head in the kingdom of God. And regardless of um, how good you think you were, we were all paralyzed and crippled and laying on a mat. And so in the kingdom of God, no one walks with a swagger or a limp. There's no place for either of those. Nobody walks in this boastfulness as if you got up off the mat on your own. And yet, no one should hang their head in condemnation. Because in Christ, there is no condemnation. And now, I can tell you what too. Um, one of the ways that you can check on church people to see if they possess the heart of God or the heart of a Pharisee is you let a bunch of paralyzed people start hopping up off of their mats. Okay? And then you see the response of the church people. Because you will either focus on the mat or you'll focus on the miracle. Okay? And if you find yourself focusing on the mat, what used to be, and the filth and crud that used to be, then I've, I've got really bad news for you. You're on the wrong team. You're not on God's side when it comes to people coming to know Him. Now, nobody ever realizes that they're there. Okay? It's a hard one. But it's what, it's what makes a Pharisee a Pharisee. 
You see, every time in the New Testament, when people would get saved, the religious people would get aggravated. Okay? Every time life change happens in the name of Jesus, religious people get, get aggravated. That means when those people are sitting in your seat, you get aggravated. That means when those people start infiltrating your church, you get aggravated. Can I just tell you, it's the one time I've ever told somebody they're not welcome in the church I pastored. I've done it one time, all right? This couple comes in, and they were very concerned about my preaching, and which I don't blame them. I mean, come on, you know? Who can blame them for that? <laughs> but what they were concerned with is they said I was watering down the gospel, to which I went, who the hell? Are you talking to me? All right? And I got offended. I mean, yelling mad. I'm in my office going, how dare you? I mean, I'm screaming. They're like, why are you so emotional? I was like, the only thing you could accuse me of that would be worse, it'd be like accusing me of adultery, okay? I would be mad because I, this isn't just my job. This is who I am. I mean, I do my best to point people to the cross every single week, so how dare you? And then um, their hearts began to be revealed a little bit because I said, if I'm not preaching the gospel, then explain to me how however many hundred people got saved over this past month. And then they went to, yeah, but how do you really know they got saved? To which I went, uh-oh, uh-oh. Uh-oh, you see the mat and not the miracle. I see where this is going. And then shortly after that, in the conversation, they said, and we really have a problem with all these new people coming in because we think they are going to pollute our church. I said, well, hold on. If you see people as pollutants, then there's the problem. Get out. Get out. I'm the shepherd. I take care of the sheep. All right? That means you feed the sheep. It also means you protect the sheep. All right? You've got a rod and a staff. For some, you reach out and you hook the sheep and you say, come on, sheep. And then with the rod, when the wolf comes, you wham him in the head as hard as you can. Okay? And so that's what I try to do in the name of Jesus. All right? Yeah, and that's for you. That's for you. Okay? Now... And and so what we as a church need to do, because we can all slip toward... That person's here and, uh, you know, right... And it's progressive sanctification. So when you come up out of this water, it ain't like just everything's perfect from then on. There could be some slips and some falls and all that. And we as a church have to stay focused on the miracle and not on the mat. All right? And when we find ourselves, church, slipping towards that kind of heart where we, where, where we don't see people as the object of God's grace, you know, he, he saw people and loved them and died for them. And we begin to see them as pollutants to our church. Then we check each other. And you go, hey, look, man, I know you love Jesus, so come here. Hey, are, you, are you focusing on the miracle or the mat? And so Peter, actually Jesus, Peter just says, Jesus Christ heals you. Now let me tell you something else, though, as you get up and take care of your mat. Um, you are never to lay back down on that thing. Th- that would just be dumb. Would that not be dumb? Can you imagine walking up and be like, oh, I'm so sorry for you. Uh, how long have you been crippled? And he got up off of there and he's like, no, I'm good. And you'd be like, dude. All right? Why would you lay in that? Right? You, you don't have to lay in that mat anymore. Now listen to me, some of you that are not walking in a lifestyle worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't have to walk in that mat. Anymore. You don't have to lay down in that anymore. Christ has, has said, get up and walk. So walk with him. Will you stumble and fall and stump your toe? Yes and amen. And by his grace, he'll pick you up every single time. But how dare you lay back down in the filth that he rescued you from? Look, you, you mean more to him than that. 
He's given you the power of the Holy Spirit. Quit white-knuckling the thing and just abide in Him. Abide in Him and He'll abide in you. That's a Bible word for stay close. Stay close to Him. He'll stay close to you. And then the fruit just kind of starts popping out. Okay? And so if if He's healed you, if if you're a Christian... And you, and you look around and you're just still in the filth, then get up. Don't deny nor be defined by that mat, but you towed it with you. And the dirtier the mat, the greater the sin, then the greater the glory goes to him. Now, it says, and immediately he rose. And all the residents of Luda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. So once again, in Acts, we see that um, God uses uh, the, the, the life or the testimony, the changed life of people to draw men and women unto himself. He's like the master of making miracles out of messes. And he does it, he does it once again. Now, I tell you about that part, 32 through 35, really just to set up what's coming next. So Peter heals this guy, or Jesus heals him, according to Peter, but, but Peter was there, so he kind of gets some of the credit for it. And so word begins to spread about Peter and these amazing things and these miracles that he's doing. And so word spreads all over that region, which sets us up for the next miracle and where I want to spend the large majority of our time, verse 36. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas, which is a beautiful name, okay, Dorcas. Uh, in fact, I would really encourage you dads, um, if you're looking for a biblical name for your daughter, for you expectant dads, I would encourage you to go with Dorcas, okay? I mean, it really is, it means gazelle, which is pretty. Um, uh, the good news if you name your daughter Dorcas is she won't date until she's 30, so that could be in your favor. So uh, Tabitha is Aramaic and Dorcas is Greek. And so Luke wanted everybody Aramaic and Greek to be able to understand. So Dorcas, what a pretty name. So she was full of good works and acts of charity. Um, You know, we're all full of something. She was full of good works and acts of charity. And in those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, They laid her in an upper room. And since Luda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. Um, I don't know if you have walked through this, but there are so many times where, where... God will use tragedy to draw people unto himself. You heard it in Amber's testimony. That God can use some of the toughest times to draw men and women unto himself, because a lot of times what tragedy does in our lives is it just, it, just, um, it just moves away the things that are not that important. And so the people that were close to Tabitha, we're just going to call her Tabitha, uh, the people that are close to her, when she dies and then they hear that this rock star, Peter, Rocky, I mean, you know, like the first pope, he's just one town over. It's about 17 miles away, I think. He's just one town over, and he's healing people in the name of Jesus. Then we've got to go get him. And they go, and they urge him, and they urge him to come in verse 39. And so Peter rose, and he went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. Now here, this next line is where I want to spend some time on. All the widows stood beside him, 
weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. All the widows, all of them, all of the widows, this lady, Tabitha or Dorcas, has such an impact in her community that when she dies, it's not your average funeral, okay? Why? Because she's full of good works and charity. And what did she do? Was she a miracle worker? Mm-mm. Was she a pastor or a preacher? Not. Was she, uh, was she an evangelist? No. You know what she did? She was a seamstress. Yeah, that's it. She just, you know, she would sew garments for who? For whoever needed them in town. And I'm sure while she's doing this in her community, um, she's probably thinking, you know, this is really not that big a deal. Okay, I'm no Peter, I'm no John, I'm not healing people, I'm not getting lame guys to walk, I'm not proclaiming the gospel around the world, I'm not really doing anything super significant in this world, okay, because really, uh, Tabitha would say, my talents are pretty minimal, all right, I, I just, I know some people in my community that have some needs, and so I don't know how to preach, and I don't know how to sing, and I can't do a miracle, but you know what I can do? I can make a tunic, and so she would just... You know, and you're going to make one at a time, I'm sure. And so she would just make one and hand it out and then find out somebody else needed one. And she'd go, okay, well, I can do that. And she would make a tunic. She would hand it out. And so she had that kind of impact in her community over such a long period of time that on the day of her death, what happens? The entire community surrounds the place. I mean, they all show up. And when Peter, the miracle worker, when he shows up to town, there's, there's weeping. And they're like, look what she did for me. And none of the stories are miraculous. You get that? This is, what, this is what I love up to this point about her and the impact that she had in her community. She didn't do anything that, that just any ordinary average person could have done. But it has this incredible impact. And so on the day of her death, all of these people show up kind of in her name and just weeping. I mean, it, ha- it has a big deal in their lives. It means something. She meant something big in her life. Um, I don't know if you've ever read the book. I- I'm sure you have. The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. Um, I got a hold of that book really late. Uh, I became the executive pastor at Beach, I don't know, maybe five or six years ago. And uh, uh, when I became the executive pastor there, I thought, I should probably read grown-up books. Because before that, um, I was a youth pastor, right? And so you read youth pastor books. Like, what do you do if somebody toots during Bible study, right? And you're like, oh, it's a whole chapter. And you read on that. or uh, uh, Want to cast out a demon? Send the seventh grader home from camp. You know, that kind of chapters on that. So, <clears throat> so when I grabbed that book, the second chapter of that book, the second principle of, of highly effective people is begin with the end in mind. And so Stephen Covey, um, he, he walks you through this, this exercise. And as I read this passage, that's, a, that's one of the first things I thought about. Um, the exercise in the book is imagine that you are at your own funeral. I mean, imagine, you know, you get all dressed up and you, and you go down to the church or to the chapel or wherever you're going to get buried and, and there's, everybody's, you know, dressed up and there's flowers and, and you walk up to the casket and it's you. And then you get to be a witness at your own funeral. Well, what do you want people to say about you? Because you, you realize that the, um, the, the death rate in America right now is hovering right around 100%. I don't know if you guys are onto that, right? 
Right about 100%. And so there will come a day, when, every, unless Jesus comes back to get us, where you and I, we're going to die. And, and they're going to dig a hole and put us in a box and put us in it and shovel dirt in our face. And everybody's going to go back to church and eat potato salad, all right? And, uh, and somebody's going to have to say some stuff about you on that day. Well, what do you want folks to say about you? I mean, if you had four or five people that were going to speak at your funeral, well, what would they say? And in fact, even a better question is, what would you hope that they say? I mean, would you hope they, they would stand up there and go, hey, I just want to tell you about my good friend here. Um, I, I'm just, he was so fit. I mean, his abs, seriously, y'all, his abs, they were Unbelievable. Huh? Or, um, I, I mean, my, whew, my friend, she had accessories. I mean, the way her earrings and bracelets would match her socks that nobody could, it was to die for. <laughs> right? Think, think about it. Or they, let me tell you about, about my, my dad. My dad was so busy. Oh, man, you've never met someone as busy as my dad. Think about it. What do you hope they say about you? If you want homework at church, why don't you do this? Why don't tonight when you get home, why don't you spend a little time and say, but here's what I hope folks would say about me because guess what the reality is? The reality is that you know what they're going to say then? They're going to say then the script that you're writing right now. That's what they're going to say. They are going to say then the script that you are writing right now. Now, you know what they said about Tabitha? Hey, um, she was full of charity. She was full of good works. Look what the widows, the widows would have been like the least of these in the first century. They didn't have anybody to take care of them. And so the least of these in that community would have all shown up and they would have said, look, look what she did for me. So what about you? What's the script that's going to be read in your life? Wow, he was successful. I mean, he was so successful. His car was so fast. Have you ever been to one of those kind of funerals? It's a real shame, isn't it? Isn't it a real shame when you've been to one of those kind of funerals and everything is superficial and everything is temporary and everything is worldly and you just sit back and go, oh, no. That's the best that they could come up with? Oh, no. Well, what are they going to say about you? At yours. Um, in a few weeks, I'm going to give you my whole spiel on what I hope they say at mine. All right, when we get to when we get to Acts chapter 11. But I'll give you a couple of hints for me. I I um, I don't care if anybody gets up and says that dude built a mega church. Do you know it's not even on like my top 20 list. Not even close. Um, today, what I was doing right before this service started is I was coaching rookie baseball, okay? You know why? Because I was dumb enough to pray for patience at one time in my life, and the Lord went, okay, coach rookie baseball, all right? Oh, my goodness. Hmm, so uh, that's why I don't give a coach a bat. You're like, get back in. So that was going on. But you know a part of the reason? It's because I want people to talk about me as a dad before they ever mention me as a pastor. And that's part of the script I want to write. Part of the script that I want to write. What about you? What's the script that you 
or writing. Um, Gretchen and I got married in, in 2000, which is awesome because I can always remember how long we've been married just based on the year. <laughs> so I would suggest it if you had the opportunity. So uh, <clears throat> Gretchen's granddad uh, was, was one of the officiants in our, in our wedding. And uh, Gretchen's granddad, her mom's dad, was a church planter. Isn't that cool? And, and um, so he and I kind of had a bit of a connection, you know, because he's a pastor and, and I'm a pastor and we would talk. And, and uh, I really looked up to him a ton. And, and, and it's really cool because he was a pastor, for, I mean, just for a long, long time. And he planted churches and the church that Gretchen grew up in, her granddaddy planted. And when he finished, when he retired from full-time vocational ministry, then he didn't retire because, uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the idea of retiring is, is not in the Bible. You get that? Like, there's, like, you don't, when the Lord is your boss, you don't retire. You just change jobs, but you, you know, your employer may change, but the idea of, I'm going to work a ton now and save up a bunch of money and just play golf forever, that, that's cool, it's just not biblical. And so, what he did, after he planted all these churches and served and served and served, and he, and he was no longer the, uh, planting or lead pastor of his church or senior pastor of his church, um, he and his wife became uh, house parents at this boy's home in Virginia. And so they spent uh, really the majority of the rest of their life just discipling these young men from around Virginia that had nowhere to live and no parents and those kinds of things, all right? Just pouring into these young men, pouring into them for years and years and years. And then um, just a few months after... After Gretchen and I got married, uh, her grandfather got sick, went to the hospital, and everybody uh, thought he was going crazy. They came to me and said, you need to talk to him, he's going crazy. And I went in there and talked to him, and he said, I'm not coming out of here. And so they, you know, the family saying, oh, he's paranoid and he's losing it. And I went and talked to him and came out, and I said, I think he just knows the Lord, and he has the spirit of discernment, and he just kind of knows what's going on. And so he got his house in order and got everybody ready, and he did not come out of the hospital. He passed away. And so just a few months after marrying his granddaughter, I had the opportunity and privilege of burying him. And, um, I mean, you don't talk about intimidating, right? It's pretty intimidating. Until you begin to hear the story of his life. I mean, what a phenomenal man. Now, I met him, you know, just in the last few months and years of his life. And when I met him, he was one of those. One of the reasons I want to be an old preacher is because when you get to be an old preacher, you can say whatever you want to say. I mean, you think I say some stuff now, and I'm kind of throttled back because I, I want to have a, a, a while to do this. But that dude would just say whatever he wanted to say. One time we were at Easter dinner, you know, we'd gone to church with him, heard him preach, and, and then uh, we go to Gretchen's parents' house for Easter, and the whole family comes over, and Gretchen had this cousin at that time, she was uh, late teens, early 20s, and she was all pierced up, and, and she had her, um, her hair was just all these different kind of colors, and I'll never forget when she comes walking in, and he just went, well, the Easter egg's here, and I just thought, <laughs> oh, I love you, I love, you are my hero, I love you, so awesome, see, we just say stuff like that all the time, so... So here's what I'll, I'll never forget as his, at his funeral. And um, quite honestly, it's an, it's an easy funeral to do because of the script that he wrote. 
I mean, we could still be there just talking about how he served the Lord in his time and then went to sleep. And he did. He was a faithful husband. He was a good dad. And he was an incredible pastor and this great church planter. But one of the most significant things, um, one of the biggest takeaways I had is when we went to the graveside, and there there was all of these dads, like maybe in their 30s with all these little kids, and all these kids were at the funeral. And I didn't, really, I didn't recognize any of the kids. And so I'm leaning over to Gretchen. And I'm like, is that your cousins? Who are these? all these little kids? And she, she kind of leans over and goes, no, no, no. You remember, remember Granddaddy was, a, uh, he was one of the house parents at the boys' home. And so all of these boys that he had poured into for all of those years, when they were five, six, seven, up into their teenage years, they had moved off to all over the country and then at his funeral, they showed back up. And it wasn't just them anymore. They had their kids. And, and I'll never forget, there's this little red-headed kid, this curly little red-headed boy, and his daddy was leaning down all over him going, this is who taught me about Jesus. Come on, man. Did you know that, um, that Gretchen's granddad never, never, at least the church that she grew up in, it's not a huge church. I mean, it's not really big, that big at all, okay? Um, it, it might be. There's, there's probably more people in your section on a Thursday night than are at their church, maybe in the whole thing. So it wasn't about making a big church, but that dude made an, an eternal impact on that community. And, and not just on that community, but for generations to come, the life, the, the script that he wrote, I mean, it was... It was a significant impact. And I appreciate it so much. I appreciate that, that my kids um, are a part of his heritage. So what about you? What about you? If you were like Tabitha, I mean, if today was your last day, and we had a funeral for you, and somebody stood around, and somebody's going to say something, what would, you, what would they say right now? And how does that compare to what you would hope that they would say? Well, listen, you write the script that determines what they will say. And so the script of Tabitha is that she had a tremendous impact on her community. And what I want you to hear is this. And she wasn't a pastor. And she wasn't a church planner. And she wasn't a miracle worker. And she wasn't a superstar. And she didn't have any kind of extraordinary gifting. She was just simply full of good works and acts of charity. Verse 40. But Peter. But Peter put them all outside. And he knelt down and he prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha. Notice he didn't call her Dorcas, right? He went with Tabitha. (laughs) And he says, Tabitha, arise. Now, this is a resuscitation, not a resurrection, because she's going to die again sometime later. But she's, you know, God decided, we're not quite done with you, so come on back. So she came on back, and she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up, and then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. Ta-da! And then what happens? And it became known throughout all of Joppa And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. And get this. He presents her alive 
And many believed in the Lord. You know why many believed in the Lord? Because she had such an incredible impact on those many. Do you know what? Do you know what you don't know about the rest of your life? You have no idea what hangs in the balance for the rest of your life. You have no idea the kind of eternal impact that God won't, might want to have through you. And you may never have some kind of big ministry and big church, and it really is irrelevant. But you have no idea what hangs in the balance. So I want to ask you this question. Will you spend your time making a name for yourself or making a difference? Because one of the things I love about this description of Tabitha is it says all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. That she had a limited amount of time. And what did she do? She was not very interested in making a name for herself. And some of us, especially, listen, the American dream is to do what? Is to make a name for yourself. It is the pursuit of happiness. Oh, God save us when that becomes an idol in our life. When we spend the majority of our time trying to make much of us, do you realize that's actually the exact opposite of what it means to be a disciple of Christ? And so for the rest of these days, you have a choice to make. You can spend the rest of your days trying to make a name for yourself or make a difference. Um, I don't know if you've been to a Greyhound race. Obviously, you wouldn't admit it because we're here in church, but uh, uh, when I... Years and years and years ago, uh, when Pastor Ryan first moved to town, I said, come on, get in the car, we're going to the Greyhound race. All right, I'm going to see what this is all about. And so we, we found out where one of the Greyhound tracks was, and we went, and um, it was kind of an unbelievable place, right? I mean, it was crazy. Uh, and, and we go into the place and, and see all the, the betting and the gambling going on, and my, my biggest takeaway from that is, it doesn't look like these folks have the extra income to be gambling on the dog race, but that was just an observation, right? <clears throat> and then so we go out to the, to the track to watch the dogs, and actually we, we were so out of the loop on greyhound races, we didn't even know there weren't even live greyhounds at the one that we were at, so we were just watching them in like Jersey or something. I don't know where they were running, but they were running somewhere. And if you've ever been there, you know, you know what a greyhound looks like, right? It's the ugliest dog alive, that's why... After they quit, right? and I know, so I'm going to get an email about, I love Greyhound. Okay, well, God bless you, all right? Your dog's ugly. Get over it. So, but when you look at them, they look like they're running even when they're standing still, doesn't it? It's like a supermodel dog all sucked in. Uh, just When they run, they look awesome. But when they're standing there, they look like, you're going to tip over, okay? You got to get moving. It's like a bicycle with no rider. It's just kind of... <clears throat> and... and um, and so when you get to the Greyhound race and, and they're putting the dogs in the kennel, man, I mean, the dogs are just going bonkers. Why? Because they were built to run. I mean, God made them to run and to race. But they race each other all the time. So you know they know each other. They're like, what's up, Ralph? Hey, Ted. They're like, I'm going to smoke you today. You're like, whatever, bro. Watch this. Boom. You know, they're going to go. And they line them up in that thing. And, um, and the announcer comes over the thing. And, and, and he, you know, when that, that rabbit, fake rabbit thing comes out. And they go, here's Rusty. And I don't know why they call it Rusty. I'm not, I'm not that into it. I just went that one time. But when Rusty pops out, the dogs go crazy. I mean, they are like, oh, my, there he is again. There he is. He was here yesterday, and he's fast. He is fast, but I'm feeling it today, okay? I switched to a Purina, and I've got, you know, stretched out the hammies. And boom, I'm on it. 
And so they're all jumping around and barking and going crazy. And, you know, they got the little muzzle things on. And, and, and it's, it's intense. And then, boom, you know, Rusty comes down. And then they, they take off. And you ever seen them running? I mean, they don't run like regular dogs. It's just reach and pull, reach and pull. You know, and they're running. And they're going around that thing and going around that thing. And then, I mean, with everything they're made of, you know, and they're kind of elbowing each other in the turn. And, and then right when they get to the end, the Rusty, the rabbit, just, boop, he just disappears. And they all get to that hole, and they're like, Where, I, he was here. Where is he? Where is he? Good, he's fast. You know, they're freaking out. And when you stand there as a person, you go, what a stupid greyhound. How dumb do you have to be to continuously chase after something that's not even real? What a dumb greyhound. So guess what's going to happen tomorrow morning when you wake up? You think you hear the alarm, but you know what the alarm is? Here's Rusty. And you're like, ah, here we go again, here we go again. Woo! And you get all fired up about whatever it is, whatever it is. It could be your career, it could, I mean, whatever it is. And you could spend the rest of your days chasing after something that's not even real. <laughs> and competing with other people chasing after a fake rabbit. And because you were disappointed first, you think you won. Now, what the guys at the track told me, because they're experts, they said, you know, I mean, Rusty's just this mechanical rabbit, so sometimes Rusty breaks down, right? I mean, it happens. A rough day for Rusty. And what will typically happen is, you know, I mean, they're running and running and running, and they're thinking, he pulled up lame, and they'll go, bah, and they'll tear their muzzle off, and they'll rip the little fake pillow bunny rabbit Rusty, they'll rip it apart. And you know, those dogs won't run anymore. They won't run anymore. Why? Because they think, man, here it is, finally, my one goal that I've been trying to pursue my entire life. And when they go to sink their teeth in it, they go, I've been had. He's not, you've got to be kidding me. Right? I could have just been chilling at somebody's house, you know, just eating Purina and hanging out. And I've been chasing after this rabbit. And, and I bit it. And it wasn't feeling it all. There was not even real and so quite honestly and, and the guys at the track were telling me I mean, you know it's so sad because the dogs have like lost their purpose and I go well I don't know what's more sad is it more sad to chase after something your entire life that's not even real and never attain it or to actually grab on to it and realize you've been fooled so some of you set all these kind of goals right and you've been living in this, you know, as soon as I reach this place in my company, as soon as I have my children, as soon as I get in that house, as soon as, once I get there, then everything will be complete. Or you spent all of your time, effort, and energy climbing that corporate ladder, and then you get to the top, and you go, uh-oh, it's on the wrong wall. And then what do you do? You know, this upcoming weekend is the Super Bowl, right? And our country will go crazy for the Super Bowl. I can't even remember who won last year. And some of you can. But I can't remember who won two years ago. And some of you can. And I can't remember who won three years ago. And some of you can. And if you can, it really ought to be a red flag. Maybe you might want to spend your time in other things. Right? Right? Just spending our life 
on things that don't even matter. So what will you do? Will you spend your time on making a name for you? Or will you spend your time on making a difference? Here at the Church of 1122, we want to give you the opportunity to make a difference. All around the world, yes and amen. You know my heart for, for missions around the world. But also right here in our city, right here in Jacksonville. I think it was Jonathan Edwards that said, the light that shines the farthest shines brightest at home. And we will always push you to do missions around the world to the ends of the earth. But we also have a responsibility and a heart to make a difference right here in our very own community. And so um, in your notes, I just put some action steps. First and foremost, how about we start praying for our city and its leaders? that we start making it a priority to pray for, for our city, to pray for Jacksonville and to pray for its leaders, to pray for the mayor. I can tell you, whether you voted for him or not, let me tell you something about our mayor. He loves Jesus. I was at a, a, an interfaith prayer breakfast where I spoke with the mayor, and you know what he told our community? And again, there's everybody there, right? There's Muslims and Jews and Christians and Hindus and everybody. And our mayor stood on the stage and said the only hope for Jacksonville is the blood of Jesus Christ you pray for Mayor Brown and the leaders of our city whether you agree with their politics or not I don't care we pray we pray for our leaders and then secondly you just get involved in a local ministry and on your seat you might be sitting on it if you're not that perceptive there is serve local missions here are some opportunities for you to get plugged in there's heartfelt ministries that's a ministry that that that's right here in town where you can help serve the elderly and the needy. There's, there's Beam. You can help serve there. Um, there's First Coast Women's Services. Christians are all about pro-life. And then don't do anything to support what they say they vote for, right? So maybe you could plug in there. I want to point this one out, the McKenzie Academic Resource Center. You want to make a, you want to make a difference in the life of this community? Um, the McKenzie Academic Resource Center, if you've been around 1122, hopefully you know the story of McKenzie Wilson, a girl that got saved at 1122. And then four weeks later, she went to be with the Lord. And her family has decided to make a difference in our community. And they started the McKenzie Wilson Foundation. And for the glory of God and in the name of McKenzie, they, one of the things they do is started these McKenzie Academic Resource Centers, or MARC, at Portside, which is right across the street, and at Countryside which is another community in need. And you know what you can do? You want to make a difference? They're looking for what they call homework helpers. Homework helpers on um, Tuesdays from 4 to 6 at Countryside and Wednesdays from 4 to 6 at Portside. And if you want to help, you just go to mckenziegives.org and you can sign up and help. And let me tell you, you, you might not make a name for yourself that way. And you might not uh, change the world. But do you know what you'll do? You'll make an impact. And you'll change some kid's world. And you stick with that kid. And you, uh, uh, you just help them with their homework, which really all it is is mentoring. A lot of these kids, they just don't have anybody to ask them, have you done your homework? Can I, can I help you with that? You know what? God... Uh, put you together in such a way that you can do this. And in Jesus' name, you can make an eternal difference in the life of a kid or a couple of kids, but just a couple hours a week. 
And you have no idea, you have no idea what hangs in the balance. And so um, you can pray for our leaders and you can get involved in a local ministry. And if you look through some of our local ministries and go, well, I don't, I don't know about any of these, then you could just start your own. You could just start your own. But one of the things that keeps people from making a difference is you fall into this trap of thinking, well, I mean, what can I do? The problem is so big. I mean, what can I do? I just do something. Just do something. Do for one kid what you wish you could do for every kid. Do for one person what you wish you could do for every person. And then watch God do what God does. And we just do our part and we count on Him to do His part. Um, there's this interesting conversation in the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 18... And the disciples come to Jesus and they say, I put it in your notes as the final thought. It says, and at this time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You know what they were saying? Hey, we'd really like to make a name for ourselves. So who's the biggest deal in town? They actually, some of the guys were arguing about who gets to be like vice president of heaven. And and so verse two, and calling to him a child, Jesus put him in the midst of them, and he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. So if you sign up as a homework helper, don't screw it up, okay? It's kind of a big deal. So you want to make an impact? You want to make a difference? In God's economy, what Jesus says is, you know what? When you focus your time, the time that God has given you on making a difference instead of making a name, sometimes the name comes along with it. In God's economy, you become a big deal. You become what he would say is the greatest. And as I read over that passage, I just can't help but think, in our very own community, we have children. We have children that our society and, and, you know, the hand that they have been dealt, it's really really a tough one. They, They don't have moms and dads to help them do their homework and those kinds of things. And we, we could spend some time making a name for ourselves or making more money or climbing that ladder. Or we could spend some time making a difference because imagine just imagine that you decide okay I'm going to be a homework helper all right and for the just an hour a week two hours a week whatever you could give and you you went and you were faithful and over the next six or seven years you spent time investing not in changing the whole world but just changing that kid's world and then imagine them showing up at your funeral and telling your story see they're going to tell the story the script that you write church of 1122 i want all of us individually and then collectively as a church to write the kind of story that jesus would say now that's what it means to be great so please don't waste your time chasing after the things of this world that are of no eternal value but let us chase after the things that are closest to god's heart so please stand and pray with me Dear Father in heaven, Lord, um, Lord, I thank you so much for uh, Coach Bull Lee, that he just did what he could do, God, that he ran a camp, um, 
that was focused on sharing the gospel with kids from Dylan. And God, I thank you that by your sovereign grace that you allowed me to be there. And Lord, um, I thank you that he poured into me so that I could be here and know you. God, I thank you for Gretchen's granddaddy. God, that, um, Lord, he never built a mega ministry, but God, he made a mega impact on many, many generations. And Lord, I thank you that we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, God. Men and women that have gone before us, that we stand here today because other men and women invested in this community, invested in the people in this room. And so, Lord, may, may we carry that torch. May we pass that baton on to the next generation. Lord, I pray that specifically this night you would move in the hearts of men and women, and God, especially men, that they will be less concerned about making a name for themselves and more concerned about making an impact in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, look, we respond. That's what we do. We respond to the gospel. We're going to respond by all singing together. Tonight, I want you to respond to... um, by taking a minute to just reflect on what God might be calling you to do. What simple act of obedience could you step out in and then watch God supernaturally enact whatever he has hanging in the balance? Let's respond.